This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, where Roy and Margaret Fitzwater of Navigator Church Ministries led a track called Crockpot Church Cultures in a Microwave World. They've provided the listeners for our podcast with a free PDF resource called the Start Small, Grow Slow Strategy, which leads readers through a pastor's journey to building a disciple-making culture. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash navigators. That's discipleship.org slash navigators. Here's today's track session from Navigator Church Ministries. I'm Roy, and this is Margaret Fitzwater, and we have the privilege of leading the Navigators Church Ministries. And I would guess that most of you have probably heard of the Navigators, but an equal number probably don't know that we have a church ministry. Um, We're best known for our collegiate and our military ministries, but we have a target population in each of those. And then we also target the church in helping them to be more effective at making disciples. So that's what Margaret and I um, get to do. We work with churches all over the world, and we help them to be more intentional about making cultures of discipleship. So a little bit about our family here. Um, On the far side there is our youngest son, Stephen. He's a C-17 pilot and is currently an instructor pilot in Enid, Oklahoma. Then Margaret's mom, who lives with us, and she's our codependent enabler. Um, She helps us accomplish so very much. Uh, Margaret and I... It's the reason we get to travel and do all that we do, because she's at home taking care of stuff. And then on the far left side is our older son, uh, Christopher. He was in the Air Force when this picture was taken. Um, is now in the in private industry, lives in Dallas. Both of them are eligible single young men. So uh, I, I'm not in a rush for grandchildren, but I do want them to share life with somebody that they love. So anyway, this was taken at, at um, when our younger son received his his pilot certification in the Air Force. So um, so as we talk about disciple making, we chose the the title of our track, Croc, Croc Church Cultures in a Microwave World, because disciple making takes time. And I would love the fact that the last speaker mentioned that he's going to take that idea and put it in his crock pot Mm -hmm. to give that some thought. Um, You know, there's no instant part about this. It took Jesus three years with the the apostles to make disciples. And why would we think we could do it any faster? And we're certainly not Jesus. So um, today we're going to talk about the different aspects of disciple-making cultures in churches, um, the big picture, and give an overview of a process we're going to talk a little bit about what that might look like if your church was characterized by a culture of disciple-making and then how we grow it. So just this weekend, I was actually in a church that Roy and I have been working with for quite some time, and I was actually leading a class um, on for their DNA leaders. And in this church, they have their disciple-making groups that are called DNA groups, primarily trides and quads, which we'll talk a little bit about. But So this was a class on how you lead uh, a, a disciple-making triad or quad. And after it was over, there was a woman, uh, woman who came up to me, Joy, and she said, you know, and we've been working with this church for probably four years now, so it's been a while. It's that slow culture developing. Anyway, we've been working with her for quite some time, and she came up to me, and she said, 
this is getting so much easier. She was a part of the core team that we started working with initially. She said, this is getting so much easier. I can't believe. She said, people are just beginning to talk about disciple making all the time. They're beginning to come to us and say, do you have somebody to help me with disciple making? She said, you know, the leaders, the women's ministry leaders. So I was in that group last week and she was talking about disciple making. A few years ago, that would have never happened. So this culture is developing. After this class was over, I had a couple who came up to me and they said, you know, you haven't really talked very much about couples, but we were wondering, you know, my wife and I would really like to pour into another couple. What do you think about that? We said, that'd be awesome. That was great. That's the way I think that was, that's actually what happened with Roy and I. When we first, about three weeks after we married, we got involved in a church. Another couple did that. And so... You know, that is a great way to do it. And then, if that wasn't enough, I went into the Sunday service, and the pastor was just preaching through the book of 2 Timothy. And he was just talking about this passage that Timothy was just saying that, you know, there are really all different kinds of Christians. This passage was to Christians. Timothy was reading. uh, Paul was writing to Timothy saying, they're really... A lot of Christians, a lot of people in our churches there in the, in the very beginning of the church world that are not experiencing fullness of Christ. And our pastor stood back and he said, really? He doesn't use these words, but this passage is talking about people who make disciples and people who don't. If you want to experience fullness in Christ, you've got to be a disciple maker. So it was really exciting just to see how that culture is shifting. So that reminds me of another story that I'd like to share. It was I involved a couple named Mark and Denise in a church that we've been working with for some time. It was really pretty far along in the whole idea of developing a disciple-making culture. And so one night we were in a group like this and it kind of turned into this spontaneous testimony time. And Mark stood up and he said, I've just got to share this. He said, I'm having such an amazing time in this quad, four guys that he met with every week. I'm seeing such life transformation. He said, my only problem is I'm trying to figure out how do I get rid of my regular small group so that I can do another quad. (laughs) Now, we're not against small groups by any means, and they certainly are a big part of the discipling (laughs) process. We need them. They're part of the infrastructure that we talk about. Um, But... This couple were so caught up in the whole idea of life to life and making a difference. So there came a time when they actually moved, um, changed jobs and moved across town and so changed churches. And so when they began to plug into a new church, they were probably mid-50s or so, and they decided to volunteer in the nursery wing specifically so they could meet young couples with little kids as they were passing them across the Dutch door each week and build relationships with younger people. From that, they formed a small group. They led a number of people in their neighborhood to Christ, as well as helped deepen these people. And they really did that into the point where those people were multiplying, disciple makers making disciple makers. So we do want to talk about cultures and what it, what it takes to build a culture. But we wanted to, first of all, just get you thinking about cultures. Because you heard cultures actually used as a term from the platform just a few minutes ago. But... I want you to think for just a minute, what is a culture? What does it mean when we talk about disciple-making cultures or just culture in general? So we just finished, I say we, but you're all pretty, probably pretty much aware that the World Series just finished not very long ago. And who won the World Series? <laughs> so I was going to ask, is anybody here from Houston? Awesome, wonderful. <laughs> so... Um, so the World Series. So I want us to just think baseball culture for a couple of minutes. So this is going to be quick. But I want you to think about just the whole culture of baseball. That's something we're probably all familiar with. 
that you probably are familiar with a baseball culture, England or not. So, so think about the baseball culture for a minute at your tables. And I just want you to talk about some of the things that you think of when you think baseball. What comprises culture in baseball? So just talk about it. I'm just going to give you like a minute or two, so do it quickly. Culture is very complex, and I would bet that at each one of your tables you probably had four or five things that you talked about, and a lot of it will be very different. But let me just ask you this, because these are some of the major components of culture. So what kind of, did somebody at some table tell me if you talked about maybe language? What kind of language do you hear, baseball? What is it? I hear some face. You're out, okay. That's part. How about another language? Safe. Safe, okay, good. All right, let's talk about practices. What kind of practices do you find in baseball that you might have talked about? Depends on how good the coach is. Depends on how the good, good the coach is. That's <laughs> what else? What kind of practices? Anybody talk about practices? Fundamentals. Fundamentals. What about those cute little socks and uniforms? <laughs> and we did talk about team colors. First pitch. All right, batter up. Farm system to bring up the younger ones. Farm systems, good. Lot, lots of different practices, language, you know, and sometimes those get kind of mixed up. But, um, okay, so what about uh, uh, stories? What kind of stories come out of baseball? Yeah, they're always telling the history of the team and the history of the players. History of the team, history of the players. Mm-hmm. 
Any other stories? Listening on the radio. Listening on the radio. Yeah. Records that were set. Lots of stories. Statistics. Anybody ever in in uh, school maybe learned Casey at the bat? <laughs> lots lots of stuff like that. So so there are different elements that comprise comprise a culture. And we're going to talk about those with regards to the church. And Roy's going to give you a little overview, and then we'll, we'll break it down. So if you want to pull one of these sheets from the front of your table there, the center, we'll be talking about this, um, a big overview, and then we'll break down each of the circles as well. So we're going to talk today about growing intentional disciple-making cultures. And each of those words was very carefully chosen. So we want to grow them. We want to see them start from infancy and grow up into full flourishing. And we want to be intentional. And several of the speakers already this afternoon talked about how important intentionality is. And obviously, we're here to talk about disciple making. We are the tribe of disciple makers, right? And then this whole idea that we want to have cultures that characterize our churches, our small groups, Everybody that we interact with, cultures of disciple-making. So this is a process that helps churches to multiply and send disciples into their communities. And so we're going to do just kind of a high-level look at it and then break down each of these circles. So this process works with different-sized churches. So we've worked with churches as small as 50. We've worked with churches as large as 5,000 and more. Um, It can be a part of the church culture. So maybe the men's ministry or the women's ministry or missions is really on fire about disciple making. But it's great when it spreads to the entire church. And that's kind of the situation that we're going to describe if we were working with an entire church, helping them to transform their culture. Um, So what we're going to do is big picture unpack these things. Um, In the first circle that you see, um, we're going to talk about It really focuses on the pastor and a very small group of people. And um, it can even extend into life-to-life coaching with that pastor. Um, There's a small group of three to six people, and we break them up into even tinier groups. We call them triads and quads, threes and fours, and they're always all guys or all, all women. So we want to be able to separate them like that because there are things that I would tell you right now that I met you because you're a guy that I wouldn't tell Carol, who I've known for 30 years, really have known her for 30 years. So, so it's really important to keep those genders separated because of transparency and the ability to share with people. Um, so we spend time with those people, pouring life into them until they understand what it's like to sit across the table with God's word, maybe a material, a cup of coffee, and make life-on-life disciples. So that's the focus of that. The second circle there. And so out of that, we're really trying to create leaders who model, model what disciple-making is all about. Then in the second circle, we want to multiply, and each of those people recruit folks into a larger team of disciples, and we'll work through a number of different items, and we'll unpack those as we talk through that second circle. Um, but we've, we really are trying to help them focus on what it's like to be, again, disciples who learn how to make disciples, And then we send them into their community where they live, work, and play. And this whole idea of focusing. So we want out of there, we want mature believers who are going into their communities to reach the lost. And then in the third circle, we help them to develop a comprehensive outreach strategy. And Margaret will unpack that for us in just a minute. So now let's hear from you. So what we're going to do, if you want to go back to that first, that core, 
We're going to spend a few minutes on each one of these uh, individual stages in the process and help you understand them a little bit more after, after getting the big picture on all of them. Let me, uh, let me ask you first, in thinking about our leadership core, what, do you, what is the longest chapter in the Bible? Could somebody tell me what that is? Psalm 119. And what is the primary topic of Psalm 119? It's the word, the word. The first thing that's really essential in growing an intentional disciple-making church process is for us to have a leader who is, whose heart is in the word, reflection in scripture, prayer in scripture. There was a, one of the most major, in fact, still really the only major church assessment that we know of that really helps to get at the heart of where people are spiritually in the church is the, it's called the reveal assessment, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in the um, Callie Parkinson. Is, we'll be doing one of our workshops with the book Rise. But in that assessment, one of the major, I, I remember when the, the assessment was first done, even at Willow Creek, uh, one of the major findings that was, has been shown in churches, in every single church, there was one thing that came out of it they actually called the vanilla ice cream of spiritual growth. That vanilla ice cream, they called it that because vanilla ice cream in the United States outsells every other flavor by more than two to one. And that vanilla ice cream was reflection on scripture. The most important thing. Now, a lot of times pastors will say, well, obviously, you know, you got to know the word. But we're not talking about just knowing the word. We're talking about living the word. We're talking about having it deeply uh, in every aspect of our life so that we just... We just kind of exude scripture or whatever in, in anything and everything that we do. It's a relationship. really is about relationships. And that's where we start on the foundation of any kind of disciple making is a relationship with God and a relationship with other. And that comes out of spending time in the word. And if people don't have a value for it, we have found that about the only way to change, we have a lot of pastors who ask us, our church doesn't value. I love discipleship. I've got these three or four people to do, but for the most part, people in our church don't value discipleship. How can we get them to understand that's critical? And we said, well, how much time are they spending in the Word? The Word changes our values. It's God who changes our values. We're not going to, you can't teach that to someone. You can't beat it into them. You can't preach it into them. They have to get in the Word. God has to speak to them. They have to see they have to understand and listen to God and understand that discipleship is what he calls us to do. There was a survey that came out several years ago, and Roy and I were reading it, and it said that the average leader, not pastors, but the average leader in a church spends less than two minutes a day in the word reflecting. <coughs> and we thought, oh, surely not. You know, we're thinking our circle of friends and leaders in churches and they're pretty major into the word. It's like, oh, that can't be, that can't be. So we started, actually, we asked several groups of leaders that we were working with, these, some of these leadership teams, so how much time do you spend in the word? And we did that with a few churches. And you know what? Yeah, we're just less than two minutes a day. It is pretty amazing. So, you know, we look at how little we're actually getting done in churches and how hard we're working. Might think back to that, less than two minutes a day. So the reflection on the word is absolutely critical. Different than Bible study, but we're talking that relational time. So that's the first thing we do is prayer and scripture. It's all about helping the leaders. It might be a pastor. Roy mentioned coaching. That almost should be a sub-circle here. 
because um, a lot of times we end up doing coaching maybe even for a whole year with a key leader in a church. It might be a leader in a women's ministry, a leader in men's ministry. might be this, depending on what the desire is for that. Whatever area that leader has influence over, that person has influence over, we, if they are not familiar with discipleship, you know, this in, this, in the, um, the talks that we just came from, they mentioned that a problem is a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders have not been discipled. So we have a coach approach that actually um, is a discipleship model because a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders, it's really hard for them to say, well, I just haven't been discipled. But it's kind of cool to have a coach. And so we have a discipleship life. It really is life and leadership. So uh, life and leadership coaching. But sometimes we do that for a year because we want this coming out of the heart of a leader that's going to move this effort forward. If it's not coming from the heart, if it's not absolutely strong in there, it's not going to be sustainable. That's really important. Which brings the, the prayer part, too. Another part of that is assembling a prayer team. So if a church is going to move into a disciple-making uh, culture, uh, a prayer team that is committed for the long haul is really important. I will tell you, every single church, and I, I don't like to use the word all or, mo, you know, all, every, those kind of words, you know, we try not to use. But every single church that we have worked with personally in disciple-making, the enemy attacks. I, we are absolutely convinced that um, when we get on mission, when we're doing the real work that Jesus called us to do in our churches, the enemy engages. You know, he can leave our churches along. <laughs> we can be doing lots of good stuff, but if we're not making disciples, we're not, we're not doing the bottom line that he asked us to do. We start making disciples, and guess what? The enemy engages. So we have to be ready. Nothing scary or anything like that. So we actually have a Bible study on a little kind of a light spiritual warfare to help churches understand up front. This is, where, this is what's going to happen. Just be ready. Have your, you know, have our, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power, and those are the weapons that we need to begin to engage, and it all comes from prayer and scripture. So this prayer and, the, this prayer and scripture is the very first thing that we need to do. The second part of this is teaming. We put together a leadership team, and that leadership team is a pretty diverse. We try to make it as diverse as possible uh, that, is, that really constitutes the kind of congregation, the kind of church you have. We want you know, men, women, young, old, um, representatives, but people who are influencers, that who the people are on the leadership team, that who is very important. We want influencers. And to begin with, uh, Roy mentioned that we always have men discipling men and women discipling men and women, and sometimes that's not possible in the early stages of a church. You know, you may, we may be coaching a pastor or something, assemble a team, and they're kind of discipling a group together, but it's, it's always have to, good to have at least two women or two men or something so that we can have some interaction between women and women and men and men. Because when you st- really start getting into the life-on-life discipleship, there are just issues that a woman may need to talk to a woman about or a man needs to talk to a man about. But we assemble a core team of influencers. And with that team, because they're going to be together for at least three years is our experience. This process is really designed for about three years, but we've, sometimes we have taken five years with a church. And if you, if you look, what we're trying to do in developing a culture is to get to a tipping point in a church where we have enough, you know, from the bottom up, a surge in disciple-making so that we have 15 20% of the church that is in, in, in active disciple-making. That's what we're going for. But sometimes it takes five years to get there. It may take more. But the thing is, is to, it's slow. And that's why it's so hard to remember and, and to have this prayer team assembled 
and to be committed to prayer in the scripture because it's, it is tough and it gets discouraging. You know, almost always sort of toward the mid part of the process, you know, people get discouraged, kind of have to re-envision. And as leaders, you have to re-envision, re-envision, re-envision all the time because it is so slow and it does take time. And we're, you know, we're all people that are messed up and we, you know, we get on the horse and we fall off and we have to get back on and we fall off. So lots of encouragement. So we do, we put this team together and we try to help them work effectively as a team because, you know, it's, it's kind of like mission teams overseas. One of the, the major things that brings missionaries back home is conflict in their own teams. And so we try to help them in their own team really learn to work and trust one another to, because God speaks in groups and community as well as with individuals. And that's what they're going to have to be listening to God individually and in community. They're going to be sharing from their time in the word. That's a real key to this. What leaders do is share from their time in the word. So the teaming is really critical. We do the DISC assessment normally with most teams. We use a lot of Patrick Lencioni's teaming things. He's got five dysfunctions of a team, which is outstanding. So we use a lot of his sort of leadership things at this phase, trying to really grow them together as a team to move forward. The next area is assessment. And with the assessment, we, we do a couple of different kinds. We do kind of a back-of-the-envelope, easy kind of thing that you're going to actually experience in a few minutes here. Here, And then we also do the, we, the reveal assessment with most churches. What is really important is that the leadership, the broader leadership in the church, if they're going to agree to go forward in disciple-making, to have a culture of disciple-making, they all have to understand that we're not doing it now and that we're not where we need to be now. Just almost every church could figure that out. We're not where we need to be. But it's hard for them to, to really grasp that the way they need to. So an assessment will do that. A good assessment will say, this is a picture of where we are. And they can say, wow, this is not where we want to be. We want to be over here. And then the whole cultural building process is really trying to develop a strategy for how we get to where we want to be. So the assessment's really an important part. It also helps you measure down the road that we're making progress. And that's a really important part of encouragement and seeing, okay, we're still a long way from where we need to be, but we are making progress. We're moving forward, and that's what we always have to do with growth in our church, personally and as a church. Then the last area in this leadership core is equipping. So we're trying to equip leaders with basic disciple-making tools, how to make disciples. Most don't know how. We might, and it really depends. There's a lot of different tools we use uh, Lots and lots of tools at this point in time. And we just try to assess the individual leaders, where they are now, and what they need. And there's probably two kinds of groups of, of equipping tools at this point in time. Some need just basic to foundational disciple-making. And we have a lot of churches, um, and some of you may be leaders in some of those churches, that are not uh, really well-grounded in the Word. And they just may need to fall in love with Jesus and the Word. And if that's so, that they may need a disciple-making curriculum that might be a little different. But they may need something that helps them to fall in love with Jesus again, to renew that passion. Um, they may be familiar. They may have all of their. They may have no gaps in their found, foundational understanding of who Jesus is and their love for God and others. They may have no gaps in that, but they may just need a bigger heart and. Just tools of how you multiply, how you make disciples, life on life. Maybe they've got all the education, they just don't have the life on life portion or something. And there's another tool that we really use for that. It's called the Ways of the Alongsider. Well, actually, we actually 
actually have a workshop on that later in this so that you can really understand that much better. But the ways of the Young Cider we have found to be really helpful and the life-on-life part because I know we both grew up and many of you did in an era where discipleship in our churches really did mean education. And it was really a class, more of a classroom model and the life you may have, it was any life on life, the life on life that we did when we were newly married, it was really kind of unintentional. And it was, you know, we, we came to a point in our marriage where we had some intentional discipleship, but it was, it was much different than the unintentional. So intentional disciple making, life on life, relational disciple making, we find that has to be, so we use a lot of those. But the end, the end product, the result, the final thing that we want from this circle before we move on to go to stage two in the process is all stage one. Stage one, end product, the goal is modeling, leader to model. Discipleship is generally caught, not taught. So if that is the case, then leaders have to model. We've worked with lots of churches where we have subcultures of disciple making. Rarely will it become a culture unless the the pastor, the senior pastor, is making disciples. The subculture of a women's ministry or a men's ministry is not going to become a culture unless the leader is modeling. And in everyday situations, not a, a planned presentation or whatever, but just in sharing, kind of flows out of them the stories from that individual life-on-life disciple-making. That modeling is absolutely critical. We cannot overestimate that to you. And if you want disciple-making in your churches, in the areas that you influence, you yourself have to be involved in disciple-making. And you know what? It's not that it just has to be, but it is where it is the life flow. It's what we were really made to do. It may not be natural, but it's what we were made to do. And so that is where our passion, our energy comes from, is that individual life-on-life disciple-making, so that modeling. So that modeling then takes us into the next circle, which is really maturity, and Roy's going to talk about that. So Margaret talked earlier about, uh, what was that, around the, what was the expression from England, something around the, instead of baseball? Oh, rounders. Rounders, okay. So Margaret talked earlier about the culture of rounders, and she mentioned that um, cultures are really made up of um, shared language, shared values, shared story or vision, shown here in this little circle. Um, And today, most churches have a mission statement, and many of them even have a vision statement, but they rarely use it. And most of the people out in the pews or the chairs don't really know what it is. If you ask them, they'd probably look up to the ceiling and, we exist to glorify God and to... But it's not really doing anything for them. It's not affecting the way that they do missions and the way that they do ministry. So we spend some time really focusing on mission and vision. Um, We talk a lot about core values. Every church has core values. Very few of them are written down. So back in the day when people actually carried checkbooks and calendars, we talked about the way you could see what somebody valued was what was on their calendar and what did they give to. And those really are equally true today for the church. So where does the church put its time? Where does it put its money? And then what comes from the pulpit? What messages are you hearing on a regular basis from the pulpit? That really reveals the core values of a church. So we work through a series of Bible studies to help people understand what God's word says should be our mission, our vision, our core values. And the reality is the Great Commission is the mission for every single church. 
But what does it look like at Brentwood Baptist? What does it look like at First Methodist Carrollton? What does it look like um, at the Nazarene Church on the corner of 5th and 3rd? You know, those are the kinds of things that we help them figure out. What does it really look like for our church? What has God called us uniquely to do when it comes to the Great Commission? Um, and so we, we work through this series of, of studies that help them create that or tweak it or help them to figure out exactly what God's word has to say. And during the course of this year that we spend with this larger team, we have a number of aims that we're going after. And those are listed here. Um, I'll go through them one at a time, sorry. The first one is purposeful leaders. Um, so we want to produce purposeful, intentional leaders, leaders that understand why they're there and what their church is there to do, um, how they want to help transform the community. And so we spend a good amount of time about uh, developing these folks and helping them understand what it's all about. The second area is to develop a picture of a disciple. So if we don't have a picture of what we're trying to make, we'll have no idea what kind of progress we're making um, towards that. So as Margaret and I were driving here um, yesterday, we passed by a barn out in kind of rural ten Tennessee, and there were a series of targets painted on the side of this barn with a perfect bullseye in the center of every one of the targets. And I was like, Margaret, this is amazing. I've never seen such marksmanship. I mean, both of our kids know how to shoot guns. They're pretty good, but not like this. i got to talk to this guy. So we drove up the long driveway of the, of the farm. I knocked on the door. The farmer came out and said, well, what can I do for you? He said, I just noticed, like, these are the most amazing examples of marksmanship I've ever seen in my life. How do you do it? And he said, oh, that's easy. He pulled out his gun. He shot at the side of the barn. And then he pulled out a bucket of paint. And painted <laughs> it doesn't work that way with making disciples. If we don't have a picture first, we're never going to get anything. So we take a look at God's word through a series of Bible studies and figure out what does a disciple look like? Typically, it falls into three areas. What does a disciple need to know? What does their character need to be? And what do they need to do? What are their practices? So those are the kinds of things that we're helping to focus. And most of the time, a church will develop an actual physical picture of a disciple, or maybe they have an acrostic. So our home church uses the acrostic, follow me, and each of those letters stands for something that they want a disciple to reflect in their character and their knowledge and what they do. The next thing that we spend time on is a pathway. So people really do want to know, how do I get from point A to point B to point C? How do I grow in my knowledge? How do I grow in my character? And um, the Reveal survey, as well as a number of other surveys, show us that even millennials, who oftentimes don't want anything like what the generations before them do, want a pathway. They want to understand what it looks like. Years ago, when we were part of a church with Mark and Carol Killen, these friends at the front, um, we talked about the fact that we had a cafeteria approach to ministry. So there were 12 different women's Bible studies and 10 guys' Bible studies and 15 of these and 13 of that. The reality is people really want a plated lunch. They want a starch, a vegetable, and a meat. And they might want to choose between chicken or beef or fish, but no more than that. So we want to help create a pathway that's going to help move people along. And again, oftentimes, churches will picture that because people remember pictures. You're going to remember the three circles long after you remember the words that I'm sharing. So that's what we help them to do. Now, knowledge is easy. You know, most of it can be conveyed from the pulpit, in Sunday school classes, in small groups, through curriculums. But the, so that's the no. But the B and the do are most often caught 
not taught. And you've certainly heard that before with other things. So we need to design intentional experiences where people can understand character, where we do life together, where they see how we respond. The next area is practitioners. So we want folks that are actually doing this. We want doers of the word, not merely hearers, as James 1.22 says. We want people who are actually involved in life-to-life discipleship. And then we put them in this, these threes and fours, triads and quads, like we talked about before, because that's where we see real-life change happening. You know, the idea of, of life-to-life is the principle. One-on-one is a method. Threes and fours is a method. So we want to be the principle of life-to-life doesn't really matter how we do it, but we've found threes and fours really work very effectively. And then the last thing that we want to do is we want a way of measuring progress. So do we have more disciples today than we did a year ago? Do we have people who have grown in their knowledge, their, their, their no-be-dos? Do we have people who are closer to Christ, who are more Christ-like? And so we want to have ways of measuring that. So again, the reveal survey is one of the things that we can do that. We can take a baseline, here we are, we work on our church culture for a while, and we take it again and we say, this is where we've moved. This is how we've seen our people grow. So 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 talks about imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's the goal, to produce people that are more like Christ. Out of this whole area, we're looking for people that have grown in their maturity, that they're more Christ-like today than they were before. So now that we've spent a year building into this team, and the church, then we want to go into the community. Margaret's going to come and share about that. So just in case you haven't picked up on this, in that first, in that first stage, we're working with three to six people in a leadership core. By the end of the first year, year and a half, whatever it takes to have that modeling, that three or four will reproduce into 25. Each, if you take each one of those people and they grab a couple of other people that are influencers in the church, that becomes that larger leadership group that we work with through the middle circle and through the third circle, through, through stage two and three. So we're at this point in time, we're working with maybe 25, 30 people in the church that are all meeting in triads and quads, and maybe once a month or so coming together as a group with all of these larger church organizational practices, things that Roy talked about. So I, was, I, just want, I know this is a little complex, but... It really isn't. It's pretty simple. So we're now in stage. We have people who are maturing, people who understand discipleship, and they are ready to go out into the community and really, you know, really intentionally work on leading some of those people closer to Jesus. So at this point in time, through the triads and quads where they're meeting, one of the things that they have been doing is intentionally praying for those people who have come that. God has placed in their lives, where they live, work, play, study, worship. Who are those people that God has placed in my life that he would like for me to influence to come closer to Jesus? We all have people like that. We wouldn't be sitting here. If there weren't people that Jesus, that Jesus wants us to lead closer to Jesus, none of us would be in this room right now. We can worship him. We can relate with him better in heaven than we can here. So there are people that he wants us to lead to Jesus. So who are those people? We're praying for them. By the time we get to this third stage, we've been praying for those people, and now we're going to find out how do we best move forward with those. So at this point in time, we have a, a comprehensive outreach strategy that we work with the church, and we call it a go-to, come-to, do-good strategy. 
So it's a three-fold strategy, and the first part is the go-to, and that's all about teaching people individually. So these groups, how do you begin to relate intentionally to help bring people closer to Jesus, people who are not currently uh, kingdom, they're not part of our kingdom right now, and we want to draw them closer. So we do a lot of work with Q-Place and teach people. They have the nine arts of spiritual conversations. They're really good. It's very relational, very question-oriented, so we're not just telling people things. We're learning to ask them questions, how we notice things better, how we ask better questions, all of those kind of the nine arts a lot. We help them learn to relate better. The Ways of the Alongsider has some of these things in it too. But it's all about how we grow relationships with intentionality, to go deeper in those conversations to where we get into spiritual conversations in a natural, relational way. So it's not just about teaching them to, you know, to take them across the bridge. And we use the bridge a lot. That one-verse bridge is great, there's, but there's a lot of tools to actually get them to the point to where they actually make a commitment to start following Jesus. That has to happen. But then once that does, the gospel is not just to cross that line. The gospel is for all of life. That's why we're doing life on life with them. So how do you incorporate those principles? So this, um, this personal relationship, the other thing we, we help them to understand during this part is uh, how I share my story. That's a really important part of that personal testimony. I was excited. There's, two, there's actually three women that I'm in a quad with right now in our home church. And uh, one of those women, there's a couple of us that have really been praying a lot for one of them that is actually dating quite a bit. And she, she was introduced by a friend, a Christian friend, which we were a little puzzled by, to a person to go out with who is far from Jesus. Um, and so we were a little surprised at that, but even that, we were talking, we thought, isn't it awesome right now, that right now in the second book of the 2-7 series where we are, we're actually, when I go back home next week, we'll be writing out our story. We have been for the last two weeks talking about all the elements and how to do it and what words you avoid and, and how to do that story well. So she'll have that ready for this person. So I just God's timing is amazing. But that story is another part of it. The second part is a come to. We want churches to have a strategy to bring people in. A lot of people now have never been in a church. And so what you know what is something that you can do that is really important to your community that can help? Maybe it's... Uh, uh, it, uh, a marriage a workshop uh, that is something that a lot of churches do celebrate recovery uh, maybe it's a divorce recovery grief recovery a lot of different things so look at your community what are the needs what can we do that might help people to help them come here that we can help and bless and then the third part the do good is where your church kind of becomes known in the community for at least one thing that it's really doing to contribute to bless that community community where God has placed you God has placed you in an area that he, he wants you to make that area where you live better. And so how can you make it a better place? What are the needs of your community? Our pastor went to the mayor of the community and said, what are the greatest needs we have here? And then we launched a strategy based on the needs of the community. But right now, you know, think about it. You know, if your church were just to disappear tomorrow, how would your community respond? Would it even notice? We pray that your community would grieve over your not being there. So a do-good strategy. So this is the, the last part of the process, and I, I will caution you. It's, 
when you get excited about disciple making and people in your church get excited about disciple making, one of the things that they often want to do is just launch right away into outreach because that's what we want to do is lead more people to Jesus, right? And we all do. And that is, a, that is a point that we all want to do that. But it is so easy. And churches are always concerned about these numbers and growth. And we are too. We are in our own church. But we want more people to come to Jesus. But the problem that you have, if you launch too fast into this area, it's not sustainable over time. In two years, you're going to be looking for something else or a different way to do it. And we actually had a church we worked with that was so adamant they started kind of going into the first, the first part, the first stage, skipped over. They were, you know, we said, let's wait, be patient, be patient. No, no, we're going to go ahead and start here because our community has these needs. We've got lots of people that are excited about community service. They did a five-fold, um, you know, basically do-good strategy. They were in the schools. They were in the community storehouse. I mean, they had like five big areas, and it lasted for two years. The first year, you know, there were a few hundred people that were volunteering in all these efforts. Year two, it was like 150. Year, year three, they had a hard time getting 60 or 70. And there were three of the five that they couldn't even staff. It went down to two. And they just kind of had to discontinue everything. And it, it made it harder for them to reestablish at that point in time because the <coughs> reputation wasn't as strong. So it is not sustainability comes from a heart for Jesus and a heart for people. And so if that's not developed up front and you start going into this last stage too fast, just it, it will not be sustainable. So we would really encourage you. So the goal of this one is multiplication. We want people leading other people to Jesus, bringing them back into the environment of the church or small groups or whatever it is, however your church is, is organized, but bringing them back into that maturity circle in the middle as they mature and grow from infant, child, parent, you know, into an adult parent, grandparent. They are actually naturally flowing into the community, into leadership, into those other two phases of the three circles so it really becomes a dynamic process so so at this point in time we're we're going to take a little assessment here in just a minute before we do we wanted to see if you just had any questions about this the three phases any big questions right now and then the other i will say in the other workshops we are going to be drilling down on some of these others even more because our heart is that you would be able to take the things from our workshops and just take them back and begin to implement some things. And we're, you know, you can always call us or, you know, email. And we've got people, we've got about 100 staff across the country that can help. And we're willing to, we'd love to do that. That's what we do. But we, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do, depending on where your church is, you can just start doing yourself. That's, that's what our desire is. So any questions on this sort of big picture overview that we've given you? Yes. Ladies first. Okay. No, you. Oh, okay. You're, you're the, the person okay, you're the lady. The lady. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned the core leadership might take three to five years to, to finish. How about the middle? How long is the typical time frame for that? Okay, so okay, so the the question was how long for the process, and the the uh, core the core I would say normally one to two years. Really, the entire process three to five. So, and, but just remember, it's about what you're seeing and those outcomes before you move forward that we're looking for. And that just varies by church. I know this person that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. so let me just distill that into a question first. Um, so what you're asking about is, if you have a discipleship pastor, is it better to have a pastor or not have a, but, uh, 
basically culture kind of being a part of discipleship being a part of everything versus discipleship being a department in a church. Right. Is that okay? That's the question. And if the senior pastor isn't actively engaged. Right. So it's, it, it does work, but it works way better when the senior is up there and involved in it because they tell stories from the pulpit. You know, in my quiet time this week, when I met with my small group, one of the challenges with a, like a mega church is that senior pastors often have, they're worried about, oh, I picked these three guys out that I'm going to invest in. How's everybody else going to feel about it? You know, I would say for most congregations, if they knew that their pastor was pouring into three people, they'd be thrilled. Mm -hmm. So that's normally not a big issue. It works better if the seniors involved, but you can do it. And in fact, we actually had experience with a church in Dallas that will remain nameless, um, where there was a church plant. One of their members said, hey, I really want discipleship to be a core of what we do life to life. And the senior pastor said, yeah, you can go do that, but that's not the focus of what we're going to do. And so three years later, as the church began to grow, the senior pastor realized that every single person that was in leadership had been in life to life discipleship. Mm. And that's when he caught on and said, okay, we want this for everybody in the church. So the other part of your question that I want to address is this. It is... Uh, there's a lot of talk now. Do we have a discipleship pastor? Do we not? We want discipleship to be every part of the church. So how do we? Ha- how can we have just a discipleship pastor? And I think you have to be really careful on that because if you have a discipleship pastor, the risk is becoming a department of discipleship and not being a pervasive in the church. Uh, the risk to not having a discipleship is who's watching over it, who's making sure that it is in every aspect of the church. So there just has to be strong agreement uh, with the pastor and the leaders of the church, whatever leadership structure you have in the church, that if you are a discipleship pastor, that the goal is everybody should be disciple-making and that in staff meetings and all kinds of things, you're always asking, and when you do planning, how does this contribute to discipleship? Because if you want to have a culture, every aspect of the church, and that's one of the hard parts about that that last stage, I'll say, is that, you know, we've got to decide at this point in time what we do and what we don't do. Does it contribute to discipleship? And that's actually part of that middle circle in that culture when you're doing the pathway. Does it contribute to discipleship or does it not? There's a lot of great things we're doing in the church. I, I still remember the day that our pastor a few years ago got up in church and said, we're going to do things a little differently around here. I know many of you have been involved in three or four Bible studies. We're going to ask you not to be involved in so many Bible studies. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to be involved in a Bible study. Who's your senior pastor now? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? He is we actually, just celebrated his 10th year. He's actually cool. still there. So um, anyway, it, it, really does, uh, it, it really does make a difference. But, you know, you've got you to gotta do the tough work of eliminating. What do we say nay, no to so we can say yes to discipleship? Because people in church will not have enough time to do discipleship if they're doing three Bible studies. They will not have enough time to get to know their neighbor that Jesus wants them to lead to Jesus if they're in three or four Bible studies. I mean, that's the, that is the hard work of leadership is to help people discern, what do I need not to do? What do I say yes and no to? So, okay, so we'll have another, a little bit more time for questions. We'll take one more, and then we're going to do the assessment, and then we'll have a little more time for Q&A. So another question is over here. Yes. Do you have um, any comments on the tension that can develop between life on life versus life group? Um, it, I know in our church we've had that. We started with life on life, and now we want to move to life groups, and so people get confused about, okay, what is discipleship, and how do we 
define it. And so we're, we're struggling with how to, how to um, not kill one and sort of keep both. Okay, so the question, we're repeating it for the taping, is, is how, do we, how do we do that balance between life and life and larger life groups? Right. Like small group kind of things. Yeah. So, um, yes, there's a tension. And one of the things that we have helped some churches to do is keep their conventional life groups, but meet no, like a normal life group once a week, I mean once a month, and then the other times that they meet break down into smaller groups, threes and fours by gender. And what, what you'll see is real-life transformation happen there. So it gives both. You're still assembling together as part of a big group, but then you're breaking down where you have the accountability and the transparency and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of ways you can do it depending on your church structure right now. You can even have the small groups meet every other week or not as often and on the alternate weeks give an opportunity for those who want to, to do a DNA group or discipleship group or triad or quad. So just depending on your church and the way it's structured, there are ways to do that. But it is really important. Discipleship rarely happens just in a small group because you just don't get, there's just not enough time for the transparency, the vulnerability to happen. Uh, people just don't get real. And people can hide very easily. If you get a group size more than about four, you got people that are hiding. So, okay, so we're going to move on to this assessment and then we'll come back to a little Q&A. All right, so this assessment, you should all have a copy of it in front of you. And there's actually two, at least two copies per person on the table. So feel free to write on this, mark it up. We're going to actually have you take the assessment. You can take a clean copy back home with you if you want to do something with it with your elders or leaders or whatever. Um, this is a very simple back of the envelope. You know, you can do this to get, you can do this alone in 10 minutes or less. You could take it to your elder board or your deacons or whatever your governing structure is and walk them through this assessment and help them understand where they are. So we're going to actually um, walk through this right now. So um, on this side, you see a picture of the, the wheels of a steam engine. If, and all of us, have, if you haven't seen a real one, you've certainly seen Old West movies where there's that big steam engine and you've got the drive shaft and you've got multiple wheels. And it takes a while to get that train going. But as the air conditioning company says, nothing can stop a train once it gets going. And that's really what disciple making is all about. So if you look at this picture, um, we really have the drive shaft of a passion for God and a passion for the gospel. And we have to have those things in place in order to be able to begin building cultures of disciple making. But the drive shaft's not enough. If we don't have wheels, the train isn't going to go anywhere. And so there are five wheels on this train. And so um, what we want to do now is actually have you um, take this test. We're going to take a few minutes. On the back side, let, actually, let me unpack each of these wheels just for a couple minutes. Um, sorry. And then we'll have you take it. And um, a few minutes ago at the beginning of, this, of the workshop, um, one of our friends passed out some slips with scriptures on those. And so I'm going to be calling on you if you have one of those to read those scriptures here in just a minute. So we, we have to have that passion for, the, for God and passion for the gospel. And then we want to begin to look at each of these five P's that were in that second circle. So the first one is purposeful leaders. So who has the scripture? Um, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. All right, read it nice and loud. Thank you. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, these gifts that were given for the equipping of the body. So we want purposeful leaders that understand what that's all about, that have the vision and the heart and the know how to do that. They bring intentionality to it. So the second area is this picture of a disciple who has um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, or 
And most of us could probably recite it by heart. So we want this Bible-based, specific, and one that fits your church picture of a disciple. The third one is pathway. So who has Colossians 2, 6, and 7? All right, so we want to have a pathway, a way people can move forward in their no-be-do, their knowledge, who they are, and what they do. And these include large group, small group, and life-to-life. So that's part of the pathway. The next thing is practitioners. So who has Matthew 9, 36? All right, so we need workers. We need practitioners that are actually doing this. And they need to people, people that have vision, intentionality, and means. And vision is that motivation and the desired picture. Um, in, in, excuse me. In, intentionality is a purposeful approach to it. And then last of all, means, the tools and resources that they need to actually accomplish this. Dallas Willard described those three things, vision, intentionality, and means, as the general pattern for personal transformation. Those are the things that are going to make a difference. And then last of all, progress, a way of measuring progress. So what's Acts 6, 1, and 7? Very good. In the message version of that passage, um, Eugene Peterson talks about that the the number of disciples grew by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you love to be able to describe your church as having disciples that were growing by leaps and bounds? All right, so now we're going to put you to work. If you'll turn it over to the other side of the uh, page here, you'll see this little assessment. And what you're going to do, basically, is you're going to take each column and work down the column. So in this first one, passion for God, you're going to use a one to five scale with five being high. And then you're going to rate how your church is doing in each one of these things. So under passion for God, people openly talk about loving God. Give that a one to five rating. And be honest. First of all, we're not going to ask you to share your results. But that's the only way that this assessment will really make any difference is if you honestly evaluate your church. So take a couple minutes, and we're going to work through each column going down. Then you'll add up the column, and then you'll add up all the columns across the way, and we'll see how we did overall. Okay, so we're starting to hear some conversation and some nervous laughter, so I think most people are probably finished. If you came with another person from your church, it could be really interesting to compare those scores. See where the differences are. What's that? Ah, yep. One of you may be more optimistic. All right. So we're not asking you to share your scores, but what are some things that you might have learned or observed as you took this evaluation for your church? Okay, so she learned her church was exactly where she thought it was. Yeah, it's hard to sustain things for sure, especially if it doesn't characterize the church. So we got to move toward that. So in a minute, we'll take a couple more questions. Um, we will be here again the rest of the day with tracks and then all day tomorrow. We have a table downstairs, so feel free to stop by and talk to us um, to look at materials you know, with specific questions that you might have if we don't get them answered today. Um, so I want to encourage you to take some next steps with this. So a couple possibilities might be that you take this assessment back to your church and you sit down with your elders and you have them work through it individually, anonymously, and then collect them and run a quick tabulation and see where people think that, that things are. So a free copy of the assessment is alongsider.com. Okay, good. Thanks, Bill. So take it home and use it, and then think about what you might do to take action to improve the culture of disciple-making in your own church. Something that you learned this week, something that God places on your heart, touches you and encourages you, how can you take that back to the church and put it into practice? 
so before I forget, I want to tell you the next, uh, as some of you have asked about the next uh, session that's going on in this room. And the next session is on disciple-making in a culture of consumerism and especially how that impacts our discipleship and the way that we disciple. So, so that's the next session. And Justin Gravitz, he's actually back there, he's going to be leading that session. So let me ask you, um, I, I've got a couple of resources here that I would like to send with, you, with one, one of you in this room. Tell me uh, what GIDC stands for. Growing Intentional Discipleship. Modeling. Yeah, it's actually reflection and modeling. It's actually modeling is the outcome. The reflection in scripture actually get that is part of it though. That's, uh, we might have to get another one of these for you too. So here we go. So Okay, so uh, uh, let's just spend a couple minutes if there's any uh, any other questions. We've got five minutes before you actually have to be out of here. So Oh, well, first of all, before you leave, there's a, we want to give to each one of you. This is called Crackpots, Microwaves, and Disciple Making. And so it, is, it takes you about an hour. It's about an hour read. It's a story of a church. It's actually a conglomerate of, this is a real, these are real stories, but it's a conglomerate of four or five churches. Every church is so different that we kind of put together four or five churches' stories together, and you see how a culture is actually grown in a church. Most people in churches find it very, very helpful. So it kind of makes it become real in lots of ways. It takes what we have shared on paper and makes that a reality. So and it's written by the senior pastor, and it's really like... A re- so uh, as you go out the door, we'll have people at both doors that will give you one of these. We would love to have your business card. You can leave it on the table or give it to one of these guys. Um, and what we're going to do, if you give us your card, we will follow up. We'll give you a follow-up email for how you can contact us in the future. We'll have you, give you an opportunity to join a blog. So if you don't want to, we're fine. And we, it's not like you have to have your business card to get this. But we want you to have this resource. But we'll also tell you, we'd love to have your card just to send you a follow-up email. And if you say you don't want any more, then you won't get any more. So I'll just, we'll tell you about that. So it's only if you want it. But we want to give you that opportunity if possible. Any other questions? Is there any other questions that you want to talk about before we leave? Yes. Part of what you said is to uh, make small, to start with small groups made up of leaders and influencers. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I know who would be called leaders and influencers, I don't think they're all going to lead in the same direction. I'm imagining, I'm visualizing that four cats in a bag. <laughs> how, do we, how do we put those four people together and hope that they all go in the same direction? Well, so the question is, how do we take people with very different ideas about things and help them lead in the same direction? Specifically, if we're, if we're targeting influencers. Okay, if we're targeting influencers. So you, you've got to find four people who are influencers are hungry to make disciples. And that, if you don't have that, then pray and ask God to help you find those. You know, sir, so that's what you got to have. If they have all have a heart for discipleship, then you can bring those together, and as a team, you can decide on the best way to go forward. But you got to have that team who all are hungry to do what God says that we need to do. And then the other half of that is we're using God's word to change their hearts and their minds. You're not convincing them of anything. Yeah. So, yes. well, I always go back and think. A lot of times we think about influence of the people in society itself, and some of your most influential people down the line 
Yes. Yep. We, and, and, and they may not be your most productive out in the business world. They may not be, however, they've got a hunger for the Lord, and it's, that's the same one that Jesus himself took. Yep. We use that, that acronym FAT, but we also use FAITH, and that is those three words with FAT, but I is intentional, and H is heart for God. So, you know, if so you look, look for, for people, people of faith, faithful, available, and initiators, Te- teachable. Uh, teachable and heart for God. Good. Any other questions? Last two minutes. So the question is, if you have an attractional model, lots of numbers, how do you shift that to one that really does focus on depth and discipleship? The only way, well, I'll tell you, we have worked unsuccessfully with some major mega churches. The only way that I can say that we have seen it work is just to wherever you are, wherever you are, start small. Start with a little tiny group. You know, we actually tried in a fairly large church, 1,500 or so, um, where put everybody, I mean, there was a lot of people excited about discipleship, and the pastor said, you know, I, we, we have a lot of depth, we know the word, I think we, we can do more up front, and we, we tried to discourage that, we thought, well, we never really tried it, we'll try it, so we all, they had 150 people in triads and quads to start with, and uh, about a year later, they had a restart. So it just, it fizzles out. You don't have it, you know, it's, it's hard. It's Jesus' model. <laughs> you know, he probably took a long time thinking, and he did. The word tells us he thought, took a long time thinking and praying about those 12. One left, he had 11, and from that, we're all here. So start small. Supporting them. Sure. So how do you help a facilitator of the quad? So we do have a number of resources. The reality is you can make a disciple with just the Bible and another person, but most people need some kind of tool. So we definitely recommend. Um, so there's training that's involved with that. Well, I'm just saying even life on life and, and, and helping that facilitator, you know, because they could be dealing with lots of challenges. Sure. So if you in this pattern that we're looking at, you know, these first three to six people that you're really pouring life to life in, they learn how to do it. Then they turn around and pick those faithful people, pick two more, and they're the facilitator now that's going to pour into those two to three people. Then so you keep reproducing that way. So that's well, we that's this. why it takes time though. So you're not going to reach a thousand people in a church overnight. But if you want to have you know a culture that lasts and really makes a difference, you got to start small. And there is facilitator training. This will be the last question because then we want to let you guys. What it's two. I know, I know. Well, let's go ahead. Okay. Last, last question. Please. All right. Yep. You. Okay. Um, so you start a discipleship quad. The guys get excited and they say, "Man, I want to do this with somebody else." You say, "Hold your horses and wait," or go ahead and do something and just meet with people, but maybe not this. So if they're trained and ready to reproduce to make other disciple makers, then turn them loose. But it's going to take some time for them to get that. But, way. but, but we haven't gone through the whole process yet. And they're like, got a heart, they want to connect with people. You just say, oh, just enjoy that and, and meet with them, or go ahead and take this book and go. So the question, we didn't repeat, the, the question was, if you, you, you haven't gone through the whole process, but you've got four guys who are really, really want to go. See, as long as you have one person that has been discipled before, you know, that, that knows how to disciple, and, and will reproduce the kind of person that you know that needs to be reproduced, then you could go ahead and let them start. That's still starting small. 
but they don't have to be a part of the official process because a lot of you'll find that that will happen. Some people you may move into your church that have been discipled that have exactly the DNA you want to reproduce, and that it really does begin to be organic. It's very structured at front, up front. It has to be, but then it it becomes a movement. It really does. So, thank you guys so much for being here. We appreciate. We're- You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. That message was from Navigator Church Ministries track called Crockpot Church Cultures in a Microwave World at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. And don't forget to pick up the free PDF resource called The Start Small Go Slow Strategy at discipleship.org slash navigators.